You're the CEO of one of the biggest poverty fighting organizations in the world, Robinhood, which handles like bajillions of dollars. Uh, and even you're looking at it being like, this is not enough. You cannot come up with million dollar solutions to trillion dollar problems. Yes. Hallelujah. I don't call what we do charity. I think charity is paternalistic and it's offensive, right? I think well, we're not a charity, we're a change organization. You know, we believe in changing the fundamental structures of the society in which we exist in. The, the things that we've invested in that I'm most proud of are the things we no longer invest in. Yes, yeah. Right, the thing we don't have to invest in anymore. It's either the problem was solved or government took it over. We were the first organization that, that invested in needle exchanges. And we did it at a time when it was really controversial and really scary and people saying, what do you mean, you know, giving, giving drug dealers clean needles? Well, the data was showing that if you're looking at the rise of it HIV AIDS, lives, yeah. it was actually the transmission of dirty needles. That was one of the fastest rates for, for, for this transmission. And so we piloted it and we funded it. And now we don't fund it anymore because the federal government does it. But they were never going to be first money in. All right, guys, on today's episode of Yang Speaks, the conversation you are waiting for. Andrew's thoughts on Kamala Harris as the vice president pick of the Democratic Party. But more importantly, we talk about hashtag let Yang speak DNC. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Then, of course, we wrap it up with a fascinating conversation with Wes Moore, who's the CEO of Robin Hood and an author and this complete, incredible human being. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. back in Yang Speaks for special episode because we've had breaking news, Andrew. A lot has happened since our last episode. <laughs> yes. Kamala Harris, vice president, Biden-Harris ticket. Uh, I'm excited. No, I got to know Kamala very well on the rail. It's funny, like the, the different candidates, uh, you're literally side by side uh, in, in the case of me and Kamala. I think I was at a debate neighbor multiple times. Yeah. Uh, one time I smuggled a handkerchief on stage for her. Uh, she was just like, hey, can you carry things on for me? I was like, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but, but more than that, we uh, were in Iowa back to back multiple times, uh, really much more Iowa than anything else because she spent a lot of time there and I did too. Um, but we have each other's uh, contact info. I got to know her husband um, too on the trail, Doug, who's a great guy. Uh, I'm excited. I think the Biden-Harris ticket is really hard to beat. You know, it's like it, it feels balanced. Uh, and Kamala's a freaking powerhouse where- She's a force in nature, yeah. Yeah, like she'll, she'll, she will be very, very strong on the trail uh, and make a lot of people very excited. Uh, so it's it's great and the most important thing always to me was joe's uh desire for the right partner because he, he wanted someone he had the right relationship with and it seems like he had a relationship with kamala from way back because she was um friends with his son Bo when he was attorney general and she was an attorney general uh so yeah you know it, it's a phenomenal pick in terms of your relationships with candidates on the trail you were closest i thought with Joe and Kamala and maybe Tulsi. Forgot about Cory Booker. Oh my God. Corey, sorry, you're right. Um, so 
I, selfishly, from Andrew Yang perspective, this is pretty cool because you're you're friendly with her or friends with her. Um, but thoughts on the strategy of this? Like, in what what do you think besides? Do I like the person? Do I think they're a good leader? What do you think from a political standpoint, optics standpoint? What are your thoughts on on the Kamala pick? Well, I think there's a really great balance again, where you have uh, Joe, who's older, <laughs> and then you yeah. have Kamala, who's uh, who's like a generation younger. Uh, you have obviously the gender dynamic, the the race dynamic. Uh, it it's very balanced. Uh, there's even a little bit of an East Coast West Coast thing going. The the right I watched Fox News last night because I'm always see, interested in what they say about the VP pick and they already have tried to brand her and Ben Shapiro came out same thing said Kamala is a radical lefty and to me that branding does not stick I think no, she's it really as moderate as they come I think it's insane to try and call her that I think yes she's had some California policies she's kind of been wrapped up in or just by being a senator from the San Francisco or Bay Area um, is one thing but. She was an attorney general. Uh, there is no, she's a very moderate, sensible politician. Um, so I think that won't stick. I don't know. Uh, to me, she's already been branded and throwing the nonsense at her won't stick the way it might with some of the other lesser known VP candidates he was considering. Yeah, I think they have to try that. I don't think it's correct or effective, uh, but right. you know, at this point they're in desperation mode. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Like Hannity and Laura Ingram were like, this is the most radical ticket the Democrats have ever run. And you're like, really? Not really. <laughs> I, don't think that's, I don't think that's correct. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how many moderates are really watching Fox News anymore, but I don't, I don't know. But um, that doesn't feel right. So congrats to Kamala and her team. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I think this is a solid pick. And we're and look, the other thing, the other fact, the other piece of this is that all of the Democrats fell in line which I think is rare. Like we usually have riffs in our party. Um, and that was nice to see the rest of the Democratic leadership and candidates all come out and support her and Joe with the pick. Yeah, I agree. Congrats to Kamala and Doug and the whole team. You're, and you know, let's win this thing. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to help, which is exciting, which brings me to other forms of helping and probably one of the reasons many of you tuned in because yesterday, hashtag let Yang speak DNC was trending i think it got up to number three in politics on twitter but it was like it's top 10 in twitter at least in the united states so the the, the high level overview is that the dnc came out with their let's call it their speaker card um of who's speaking all four days during the dnc convention and we were left off that list which was a bit of a shock to us because we've been in conversations with the dnc um about speaking and have been given what seems to be some primetime slots throughout the week. We are you know, expected to speak at the convention, be a member. So, and then you tweeted out, um, you know, if I'm honest, I was expecting to speak in a sense of <laughs> speak with the people on that list. So your react, I think the world is interested in your, your real reaction and, and also why this, um, why this matters to you and, and to frankly, our supporters. Uh, I think I commented to uh, a journalist that it's not like you or me were jumping up and down, like yelling in anyone's ear, being like, oh, we need this spot. We need that. That's not. Uh, yeah. Um, but that there is like a real sense that we have a lot of people that uh, supported my campaign, many of whom were on the fence about Joe. Uh, right. And I've been telling them we need to get behind Joe and uh, get Trump out. Uh, and I, I said this makes that case a little bit harder to make because one reason why people who supported me would support Joe is like, okay, if Yang is a, a big part of the team, then we can advance some of the 
um, ideas and policies that I ran on. It's just a harder case to make if it seems like we are not um, being included. Uh, and to your point, it's like, I thought we were being included. <laughs> yeah. like that. that was like the mystery. It's like, oh, like, hey, like what, what, what transpires here? I want to be clear to people listening. It's, it's not about us. Um, like, would you like to speak? Sure, but that's not the point of this. The point is we have a powerful message and a lot of people that supported it and wanted this voice heard. And, and it was actually it really be. touching the outpouring of support. So thank you if, if you were part yeah. of it. But like the outpouring of support yesterday, I was like, wow, like that's so... Uh, that was hilarious. People heart, that have hated on you forever. People have hated on you forever on MSNBC, or name nameless, but they came out and they were like, Andrew Yang's beyond there, this is ridiculous. Like that to me was, um, I don't know, funny and kind of case in point. Touching, in invigorating. <laughs> like, I, yeah. you know, it was uh, gratifying. I was like, oh, thank <laughs> you. That's so kind. Really, because like it did reflect on it for a minute um, because, uh, you know, there are other folks that are also not on the program that ran. And um, the fact that there doesn't seem to be much of an outcry, it, it was really touching to me. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. like people uh, recognize what we did. Yeah. So that, thank you to everyone who helped make make that happen uh, yeah we're, we're keeping making things happening every day twitter went nuts here we are we'll be involved in the convention somehow all right so today's episode we've got you've got wes moore man and listening to this conversation andrew my jaw dropped like six times like what a powerful story and what a powerful guy um you guys hit it off and, and been friends before right you knew him prior to Running, you know, Wes, right? Wes and I have been friends for years. Wes is like a real life superhero where he's like yeah. an army ranger and author and entrepreneur and Oprah's friend and uh, <laughs> author has a great new book uh, about um, five days in Baltimore. Uh, and he's one of the leading anti-poverty activists in the country where he's the CEO of Robinhood, which distributes tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to fight poverty in the New York area and is one of like the biggest uh, anti-poverty labs um, that, that there is. So thrilled to be able to sit down with Wes. And we talk a little bit about how I sat down with him when I started the campaign because I was like, hey, if anyone's going to be into uh, abolishing poverty, it's going to be <laughs> Wes Moore. And so, but I hadn't had a chance to catch up with him um, yeah. in, in months. Uh, so enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. Author, entrepreneur, Patriot, anti-poverty leader, Wes Moore on Yang Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, my good friend, the decorated veteran, author, combatter of poverty, all around superhero, former Rhodes Scholar. I guess you're always a Rhodes Scholar. That's the way that shit works. Wes Moore. <laughs> Wes, welcome. To Andrew, it's good to see you, man. It's good, good to be hanging out here with the Yang gang, man. I'm, uh, I'm thankful for this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, man. I'm proud yeah. of you. Well, you and me both, and I, we have so much to talk about. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, um, I saw you when I was just starting to run for president when it was uh, a little bit more uh, crazy, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know what's funny? I tell people all the time, I will never forget that meeting um, where where you came up to the office of Robin Hood. We're talking about poverty. We're talking about work. And, and so then I asked you a question. I'm like, so what are you up to? And you said, you know, I think I'm going to run for president. And I remember taking that pause, like, wait, is he serious right now? Or is he saying something that's supposed to react? And then when you, when, when I realized you were serious, I remember getting up and giving you a hug. Cause I was like, this is so, I mean, it's, it's so unbelievably bold and brave and beautiful. And, and when you think about it in, in respect of where we are as a nation and what we need, you know, we've got to be thinking bold. We got to be thinking brave on this stuff because it's uh, I think that's kind of what the moment, uh, you know, it's what the moment you know, requires and asks for. So I will I will never forget uh, exactly where we were in my office and where we we're sitting when you first told me that you were running for president. Yeah. And that was one of the best reactions I got. Thank <laughs> 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 you, I remember it, too. Um, uh, and and I mean your perspective on so much of this, and we're going to talk about your new book, uh, Five Days, because it's very timely and of the moment. But I feel like your perspective is exactly what we need. Where uh, you grew up, uh, you know, rough uh, background. Saw your father pass, I believe, at a young age. Yeah. Um, shifted around, moved around, um, had trouble in school. Uh, were sent to military school for a while, which was a code I, I thought for like, you know, this kid can't stop getting into trouble. And then you went to a junior college uh, and then uh, transferred to Hopkins, wound up a, a Rhodes Scholar. And then this is what the turn I love so much is that you wound up working at, in finance but then you self-ejected out of there and became an army ranger, a paratrooper, where you then uh, uh, became a decorated combat veteran um, instead of doing what, frankly, like 99% of people in that circumstance do, which is just try and stay near the money tree and, and, and have, have some of like the, yeah. um, you know, the fruit of the money tree drop on your, your head and then convince yourself that it was all because of how awesome you were. <laughs> um, so then you, you went... Uh, after coming back from from the military, um, wrote multiple best-selling books, including the other West Moore that I think they use in schools around the country. Yeah. Uh, became a, a host on Oprah, um, and then when you and I were in your office, you're the CEO of one of the biggest 
poverty fighting organizations in the world, Robinhood, which handles like bajillions of dollars. Like how, how much you guys give away in like a given year? Yeah, I mean, a, a, a given year we'll do anywhere from, you know, 150 to, to 200. And in, in its existence, Robinhood has given away uh, north of $3 billion to the poverty fight. Yeah, when, when you hear 150, like you might be thinking thousand, he's talking about million. <laughs> <laughs> like this organization uh, gives away hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on the regular to organizations in New York City. Uh, that's like the, the domain. And so when you and I were talking, so to me, your perspective is similar to mine in that you sort of headed all the way up into the uh, belly of the beast or like the heights of high finance and now massive philanthropy, one of the most impactful philanthropies in the world. Uh, and even you're looking at it being like, this is not enough. Like we yeah. need to go, go much, much bigger if we're going to address these problems in communities, uh, not just in New York, but around the country. Yeah. And, and but, but, but frankly, and, you know, and, and um, um, I am very, I'm very humbled by the work that we're doing. I'm really excited about the work that we're involved in right now and how Robinhood has just continued to to push the needle on a lot of really important issues and not just with our funding, with our voice, with our advocacy, with our partnerships and all these other respects. But but we also have to move with a sense of humility in the idea that you cannot come up with million dollar solutions to trillion dollar problems. Yes. Hallelujah. So I mean, like we have to be we have to be clear about the enemy that we have here and and how big and how broad and how entrenched oftentimes it is. And so, you know, we, we cannot, you know, and one thing I always, you know, talk about with Robin Hood is, you know, I when people say, you know, how big is the is the charity, you know, I say I don't I don't call what we do charity. I think charity is paternalistic and it's offensive, right? I think but well, we're not a charity, we're a change organization. You know, we believe in changing the fundamental structures of the society in which we exist in. And there is no patchwork solutions to being able to address the fact that we have long term structural breaks in the way we think about everything from housing to the way we think about transportation, to the way we think about education, to the way we think about justice reform, to the way we think about health, mental and physical health. I mean, all of these aspects play into this idea that we have to just reframe and rethink things when it comes to the policy mechanisms that we are going to support and endorse. And also about how we're thinking about the free usage of capital within our society. Who needs it? Who gets it? When do they get it? And how can we think use that as a way of creating true measures and levers of, of sustainable economic mobility for families? Yeah, I, I know Robin Hood is all about measurements. You know, when, when we were in touch uh, the very beginning of the pandemic, um, we were talking about just trying to get economic relief out to people. And sometimes people ask me like, hey, how did you measure what the thousand uh, recipients in the Bronx did with a thousand dollars each? Um, that that they received, and I was frank. I was like, I'm like, I'm totally confident that the money went to, <laughs> to good things. Like, we did not follow the people around. We don't have, uh, you know, PhDs studying what they did with a thousand dollars. We were just very, very confident that if you were a struggling family in the Bronx, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, on food stamps or otherwise, like, if we give you a thousand dollars, it's going to go to something uh, positive. I'm telling you, Andrew, it's and it's it's one of these things because we are uh, we are a very data driven organization. I'm a very data driven leader. Like I believe in data deeply. 
I also know this is that uh, you know that while we can literally put a quantifiable return ROI on each dollar that's investing to our organizations because we stru literally structured that in the way we think about our investments, you know, when to hear people make this argument of well, but if we give you know the money to individuals, what are they going to spend it on? Like we have to learn that you can be you you can be generous and not judgmental. Yeah. Right? that we are talking about families who are in some of the deepest, most dire situations. If you took a look at New York alone, in the past, and this is research that we do, we have a partnership with Columbia University to create something called the Poverty Tracker, which is really a longitudinal data set for 4,000 families that we follow and you can get kind of real-time uh, trend, trend analysis, right? Um, here's what we found, that half of New Yorkers have been in, have 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 suffered the impacts of poverty for at least a year over the past four years. This was pre-COVID-19. Yeah. Not half of a borough, not half of a demographic group, half of the city has been in poverty for at least a year over the past four years. So we're not talking about a new phenomenon that we're dealing with. We're talking about that 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 half of the city is enduring the pain of poverty on a daily basis. And and you know of, of the many things that I'm I'm truly truly proud of, that how this organization has been able to move and mobilize in this moment. Uh, I think about the work that we were able to do with the with the relief fund, and it goes back directly to not just what you were talking about, but in many ways the thesis that you've been arguing for years, right? Is that, you know, so at the onset of COVID-19, at the onset of the pandemic, you know, we reactivated the Robin Hood Relief Fund, which was to support the highest need New Yorkers who were impacted by COVID-19 uh, and really prioritize the New Yorkers that had been left out of federal aid responses, such as low-income children and families, immigrant communities, college students, low-wage workers, because people forget. Even when you look at the CARES Act and people say, well, wasn't there a cash assistance element to the CARES Act? Yes, but millions of people were left so out of it. Miss so many people, miss so many people. I mean, and, and, and in a very, in a very, in a very intentional way, Andrew, it's like, so if people were undocumented, despite yeah. them even being workers and taxpayers, they didn't benefit from cash assistance. If you were part of a mixed status family, you didn't benefit from cash assistance. If you were working but not making enough to pay into, and pay into the tax system, you didn't benefit that's at all. That's the one that pains me the most. It, it's it, that, that's like, exactly right. Even at like the income uh, tax filing threshold. Uh, the other one that pains me is uh, students. If you're a young student, exactly. uh, you didn't benefit. You didn't, you didn't benefit from this. And so we had a federal policy that was put into place, but that intentionally left out in many communities who were oftentimes, you know, the most vulnerable. And, and yes. we were prioritizing those who were most impacted by the vast racial and health disparities that had been exacerbated by COVID-19. 75% of New York's low wage, of New York's low wage workers, you know, called to stay on the front lines of the pandemic were, were people of color, our, our, our central workers. And so when we thought about how can we quickly mobilize cash and assistance, uh, you know, and, and we think about the fact that even since the pandemic began, since the uh, onset, we've now allocated over $37 million. And just in that time period alone, we made over 500 grants to over 430 organizations. So, I mean, so we've been moving fast to get cash in and cash out the door. But one of the things that we were able to do working with the community and through the community to identify what some of the greatest needs were, some of the greatest needs were basic cash assistance. Yes.
basic cash assistance where you know 46 46 you know percent of our grants that we made in that throughout relief fund were to provide emergency cash assistance for low-income New Yorkers to cover necessities. And and, and we, we weren't asking them to fill out theses to explain what were your necessities. Yeah, what are you gonna do with it, yeah. What are you gonna do with it? We need to see receipts. No, what we're saying is here's support, Godspeed, and we wanna make sure that this does not have to become something that just becomes a, a repetitive process that these families and these, and these communities are then forced to endure. And so how to rethink this whole process, how are we thinking, you know, philanthropy's role in this became a really important and speedy exercise that not just us, but also, you know, we watched a lot of other organizations take real leadership in it. And, and, it, was, and it, was, it was really great to see. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Well, you're in a similar boat to the boat I've been in, which is you're doing tremendous work that you believe in. And it's very, I mean, in your case, it's extraordinary, like, uh, you know, top of the line. Um, I, and then you also see like, hey, I'm not actually um, solving the problem that even if I have 37 million, I give to these orgs, it's like, you know, I should probably have another couple zeros. And even then, you know, and, and, and for anyone listening to this, they're like, holy cow, like, you know, th this org has a size and scale and heft that most orgs can only dream of. Uh, it's it's one reason why I think your book is is so timely and you uh, obviously were working on it before everything uh, that happened with George Floyd and uh, nationwide. Um, but it, it's about, uh, it's called Five Days, and it's about uh, the five days at the center of the um, Freddie Gray protests uh, in Baltimore that racked the city. We all remember the images. We all yeah. remember um, the uh, the CVS and like the, the other um, the uh, indelible uh, images we have from um, the Freddie Gray protests. 
Um, so tell me about, obviously you're in Baltimore right now, you're from Baltimore, uh, and so you, the city's near and dear to your heart. Um, how did you experience um, those protests in real time? Um, and then how did this book come about? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's wild because I, I think about the, this book was actually set to be released, I believe it was on April 14th. It was supposed to be released on the anniversary of uh of of everything that that happened in the in the uprising in baltimore around around freddie gray's death and it was probably around the beginning of march when i called my publisher and said we can't release it then and i told him because you know like we're that's when we're right in the heat of everything going on with COVID. i i, I was like you know i'm trying to i'm trying to run a very big organization right now and the, yeah, whole, you have a lot. the whole world is shifting under our feet and i've got to stay focused and so they're like no no we get it and um, and they said, all right, what about? And they just picked a random date. They're like, what about um, you know, June twenty third? And I said, that sounds good. I mean, at that point, I was like, as long as it's not now, yeah, I'm good, right? I gotta stay focused on this. And it just so happened that June twentieth, you know, a couple weeks after we made the final decision to push the date back, is when we first learned the names Ahmad Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and. There's actually a horror to the timeliness of it in the way that a date that they picked that was relatively arbitrary is so timely. And there's a horror to that when we think about when would there have not been a timely moment to have this conversation about inequity in our society and racial inequity. And, you know, I remember it, the whole thing kind of begun, began when I was sitting in, in Freddie Gray's funeral. And, and for those who, who might not remember, you know, Freddie Gray was a, a 25-year-old young man uh, in Baltimore who made eye contact with police and ran. Um, the reason I say that is because that was his crime, was if you are in a high crime, oftentimes high poverty area, making eye contact with police and running is enough to trigger probable cause. Had he done that in a wealthy neighborhood, he had been going for a jog. But he makes eye contact with police and runs in Harlem Park, Sandtown, Winchester, which are two areas of Baltimore, West Baltimore, deep poverty. And uh, he's arrested. An hour after he's arrested, he's in a coma. And when, he, the, when he's finally taken to the University of Maryland Medical Center, it is deemed that uh, he has three broken vertebrae and a crushed voice box and a crushed larynx. And so there were protests that took place in Baltimore for two weeks after demanding justice and accountability, saying, you know, how is someone arrested and an hour later they're in a coma and no one has an answer for what happened. And uh, and the morning of his funeral, I went to the funeral and Andrew was crazy because I remember sitting in the back of the church and I didn't feel like I had earned the right to make that walk up to go view the body. So I just sat in the back and I left the funeral and I had to fly to Boston to give a talk on poverty. And the irony of that hit me really hard. That the night of his funeral was the night that Baltimore started this process. And that's when you saw the unrest take place, literally to the point that by six o'clock that night, the governor had called in the National Guard uh, and, and put Baltimore under a state of emergency and a curfew. And um, and I found myself in Boston talking about poverty, both because of the work that I was doing, because at that point I was running an organization um, that, I, that I founded that focused on helping students, gen first, generally first-generation students, make it and stay in college. But I also knew that they were there to kind of talk about my past and my background and, and put me up as an example. 
And it was in that moment that I started realizing how dangerous that was, how it made me complicit as well. Wow. That, that we can sit there and say, and look at the people who make it and say, it's because of them and it's such a great story. And then look at ones who don't and say, it's because of them and it's because they didn't work hard without understanding the systems that we still have in place. Well, that, that's what your book, The Other West Moore is all about. Is that that's exactly right. Right, it's about the same you know, neighborhood and one winds up here and then the other winds up uh, you know, in jail. That's right. And how, and how we are so quick as a society to either congratulate or to castigate without being willing to understand or indict systems that we have in all of this. And I think about this in context. And, you know, earlier on this week, uh, you know, we had uh, the, 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 the current governor of Maryland, you know, he announced that he's, that he, he's, putting, he's putting out a book. Right. And in the book, he starts talking a lot about uh, this moment. And he was the brand new governor. I think he was governor for for uh, for for three months at the time when everything jumped off with Freddie Gray. But during this book, he spends time and, he, and, and the exact quote that he used when he was describing the when he was describing Freddie Gray was he called him a Crips gang connected street level drug dealer with a long criminal rap sheet. I spent four years focusing on and understanding what happened around Freddie Gray and what happened in Baltimore around those times. And, and here's what I do know. And I can say this definitively, that the story of Freddie Gray's life is a story of societal failure. Because this was a young man who was born underweight and premature. He was also born addicted to heroin because his mother battled heroin addiction for much of her life. She grew up in deep poverty her entire life. She gives birth to twins. Once the twins are old enough that they actually gain enough weight that they're able to leave the hospital, they move into a housing project on North Cary Street over in, over in West Baltimore. And that housing project in 2009, along with 480 other homes, were actually cited in a civil lawsuit because of the endemic levels of lead inside oh, of that no. house. Oh. You know, and, and you know, Andrew, it's like, you know, the CDC, right? The Center for Disease Control indicates that if a person has six milliliters of lead in every deciliter of blood, in every deciliter of blood, that person will have cognitive damages for the remainder of their life, right? We've known this as a neurotoxin for a century. If a person has six, Freddie Gray had 36. Ugh. So this was a young man who was born premature, underweight, addicted to heroin, and lead poisoned. And by that time in his life, he's two. And so when we're making these judgments about people, by the time he was in fifth grade, he was four grade levels behind in reading because of the cognitive damage of, of the lead poisoning. You know, he finished the, his last recorded day of school in, in the Baltimore City school system was in 10th grade and he was 19 years old. He had been in special education classes his entire academic career because of the lead poisoning. And so when we're, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this, uh, where, where, you know, hearing the current governor making points about how, well, you know, he was a, he was no, he was no choir boy. He was no singer in the church choir. I, I know he wasn't. But I also know this, is that Freddie Gray never had a shot. Freddie yeah. Gray never had a chance. And that was the point 
of all of this is that we have to understand all of these moments and all these periods. We have got to understand it with a sense of context because the truth is, is that every system that touched Freddie's life whether it was the health system or the housing system or the or education system or our policing system, that it not only failed to help him, but it did severe and lasting damage. And now we see the product of that. Yeah, and he, he dies in police uh, custody after an hour. I mean, uh, like that that's like the uh, brutal end, you know, to, to a story of institutional uh, failure. Uh, That's you know, exactly and, right. And, and, and the, the tough part of it is that, like, if you have a set of systems or an economy that's grinding people up and then someone uh, dies as a result, uh, it's almost like a reflex to say, well, what was wrong with this person? Uh, you know, yes. like, in, because that that's actually a more comforting stance and narrative than to say, like, wait a minute, like, maybe we've had... Uh, problems up and down for years and decades and generations, uh, or even the fact that in his case, I mean, you know, he, he's born to a mother who's addicted to heroin. I mean, you could probably trace some some uh, um, problems even before he's born um, to to various failures. And, and th this is something. So the the book, one of the things in the book that struck me was um, there's a woman, uh, I believe her name is Tawanda Jones. Yeah, and, and she's she's protesting like um, I believe it was her brother or so, like someone else who. Uh, who was a victim of police violence. And uh, so she's holding like weekly protests before Freddie uh, yes. dies. And and then the Freddie Gray protests end up getting built into like a pre-existing. And this struck me forcibly because you're like, wow, this is like a constant sort of waterfall of impacted families and protests that pre-exist any one person where everyone's looking around being like who are you protesting because they, 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 because they, they had like fa like different family members who'd been yeah. uh, uh victimized so that was one thing where i was like wow like if you're in that environment like that 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 is uh mind-blowing for for most i'm um, telling you andrew one, one of the most fascinating things for me about the project of writing five days was First, identifying who were the people that I wanted to follow over this five day period and that I wanted to I wanted the reader to be able to walk through this era, walk through this chaos through their eyes, through the eyes of these people. And one of the first people I knew that I was like, I've got to make sure she's profiled is Tawanda Jones. And because it's important to remember that even in the two years before Freddie Gray, right, there was Chris Brown. There was Anthony Anderson, and there was her brother, Tyrone West. And every Wednesday, still to this day, in fact, she just had the 371st straight West Wednesday, where every Wednesday she protests. Sometimes it's just her and maybe one other person, and sometimes she's got hundreds of people with her. But rain, sleet, snow, doesn't matter. She protests, and she protests the fact that even prior to all this, where she was in and she found herself and I was having these amazing conversations with her where, where she would say, you know, I was so proud to march with the Gray family when they called me and asked me. And I was so proud of the fact that the city was standing up and saying, you know, yes, we want justice and yes, we have to address policing. But she said, but I just also felt a certain type of way where I still thought to myself, but where was this when my brother was killed? Right, where was this when my brother's body was literally left in the middle of the street with mace all over him and boot prints all over his body? Where was this? And so she, every Wednesday, she protests 
demanding justice and accountability for what happened to her brother. And and she was she was such a fascinating person to follow over that five day period, especially when you look at it in context of who some of the other people were, right? So you had Tawanda, but then I also, you know, you know spent time following uh, Major Mark Partee, who was a Baltimore City police major who grew up in West Baltimore. And I remember him specifically telling me before where he said, listen, you know, I know that none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their mind. But I also know that for kids in West Baltimore, where I grew up, I know why they don't believe me. Right. Or, or following someone like Greg Butler, who's a basketball star turned protester or following someone like John Angelos, who's a son of the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, literally, you know, a, a billionaire who was also the head of baseball operations for the Orioles. And base and, and on the Wednesday after baseball played its first ever game with no fans. Now we're doing it all the time. But their first ever game with no fans when the Orioles played the Chicago White Sox. And it was because John Angelos was one of the people in the room making the final decision of basically saying, no, we should play the game, even though the city is in a state of emergency, because the world needs to see this. And so watching the various and different perspectives of people like that, people like Nick Mosby, who's a city councilman at the time, whose wife was the state's attorney in Baltimore, but watching it through their eyes. I think, uh, you know, hopefully provided a real kaleidoscope understanding of the complexity of the moment, but also that if we thought that this was just about policing or just about Freddie, that we were missing a bigger point, that society was trying to tell us something else that they were hoping that we would actually pay attention to. Well, there, there was another fact in the uh, Tawanda Jones narrative that also hit me uh, really hard, which was that. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it was for her brother or for another uh, victim, but the, they essentially settled for a million dollars and gave it to the three survivors of the victim of police brutality. Yeah. Um, and, and that struck me because it was a situation where it's like, well, you clearly know that something went terribly wrong if you were settling with a family. But but there's no um, like no arrests made, no accountability. It's just like there's a death and then there's like some uh, some money. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, I found when I was researching the extent of the problem of police misconduct was that that actually happens all over the country where they're, they're settling these civil judgments to the tune of over a billion dollars a year in the aggregate. Um, and, and so that's their way of papering over this problem. Um, and so if you think about like the, the number of times it happens and no one gets a dime or the number of times it happens and someone sues and it's completely unsuccessful because the can you imagine trying to sue your local police department? I mean, that, that sounds uh, like very, very difficult to me, you know, like uh, like you, you feel like everything would be uphill. So the fact that you're still getting a billion dollars under those conditions struck me as a sign that the problem is orders of magnitude bigger. Like if you had to try and throw a measurement on it, you were like police are causing billions of dollars of uh, bodily harm to Americans every single year. Uh, and the fact that that was happening in Baltimore where there's like no real responsibility, but here's some like, like blood money, essentially. It's like, hey, we killed your dad, but you know, here's a little bit of money. Like maybe that makes up for it. Like that also hit me really hard. It, and honestly, and I think Tawanda's story is such a powerful one around it because she didn't take any money and it was for that reason because they also knew that with taking the payment meant there was also a, you know, there was also essentially- There's also a, a agreement to never talk, talk about, about this again. Right? 
And she's like, I'm not going to stop talking about it. So she never took any money for it. Wow. But and, 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 I, and, and, and you bring up an, an incredibly important point because there is this narrative about Baltimore when people say, so what what brought the temperature down? What calmed everything down in Baltimore? And, and oftentimes the narrative is, well, it was when the National Guard were called in. Right. That's not true. Because, you know, first of all, I can I can tell you as a person who, you know, very proudly wore the uniform, you know, oftentimes when you introduce military personnel into situations, that doesn't calm situations down. Right. But the second thing and the most important thing to remember is that some of the biggest protests that were going to take place in Baltimore were actually set to take place the Saturday after the unrest. What happened, why those protests never happened, wasn't because the National Guard was there. The National Guard was already there when they were being planned. What happened was, was when the state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, announced she was pressing charges against the six officers. Because up until that point, you're absolutely right, Andrew, it's like the, the, the thread was common, right? Something happened, a payout ensued, and it went away. That was the general trend, right? But this was the first time in Baltimore history where the state's attorney was actually saying, no, I'm actually pressing charges against these officers for misconduct. I remember being there, Andrew, where there was almost this celebratory vibe throughout the streets of Baltimore because people were shocked. People were like, wait, 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 wait. She announced what? That they're arresting the officers for that? Because we had had never seen that. Never seen that. Before. And now, granted, fast forward, you know, we had two of the officers were found not guilty Four of the officers were their case, their charges were 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 dismissed. Um, But that moment, that was what actually brought the temperature down, because people thought for the first time we actually might see justice. And what's interesting now, I think even when you look at what happened with what's happened with George Floyd, one of the big differences, I think, between then and now is the bar has been risen where at that point, the charges were like, whoa, that's a big deal, calmed everything down. Now, charges have been filed. The bar isn't about charges anymore. The bar is convictions. And that's gonna be the real test to see, can you actually get convictions for, you know, for, for, these, for these instances? In the case of George Floyd, when you are literally watching a grown man in handcuffs on the ground, with another man nonchalantly leaning his knee into his neck until he can no longer breathe. I mean, the bar is not, can we get an arrest? The bar is conviction for that. Yeah, you can see why the standards are high on both sides, or at least, you know, like, I, and you, you've dug into this the same way I have, where if you're a local attorney or state's attorney or an attorney general, the last thing you generally want to do is pick a fight with your law enforcement uh, department because you literally work with them hand in hand all the time um, and, and even if it's like the state level you still know the same people the universe is very very small um so so there's like a very every incentive for that person not to bring charges is number one uh and then number two the legal standard around convicting a police officer is almost ridiculously high like yeah. uh, in, in a lot of places the police officer is like well you know, I felt threatened or the person's like making and that's enough and then that that's enough. It's like it's literally it's like you have to get inside their brain and being like, well, and like it's very hard to prove that. And, not you know, and so if you're a jury, you look up and say, what's the standard I'm working with? And then you say, well, I guess this person's um, not guilty. So the conviction standard is going to be very, very different than the 
uh, bring the suit standard. And the bring the suit standard itself was very, very high. Um, and, and it was high enough where in, in Baltimore's case, everyone was so shocked that they, um, like, you know, felt like their mission had been at least somewhat achieved, yeah. it sounds like. That's right. And particularly because there was there was no precedent to that before. So the, the fact that bar, uh, the fact that 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 glass ceiling had been shattered was pretty remarkable that it happened. And but and but but this actually really is an important point, too. When when people are saying, well, we have to make sure we are supporting our law enforcement, et cetera. Um, I agree. And, and, and trust me, you know, as, as, as someone who, you know, who has had the experience of knowing what it's like to, to, to put on a uniform and walk into areas and communities that you're not familiar with, I understand how complicated the job is. We do need to support them. And at the same time, what we also have to do is come up with policies and rules and structures that can support the ones who are doing the good work and be able to make sure we don't have to have these these incidents continue to yes. happen within our societies. You know, I, I I think about it in context of even, you know, the, the debate that's taking place right now about defund the police or abolish the police, et cetera. And, and I make it very clear, I am not for abolishing the police. I am for abolishing police brutality. I'm yes. for abolishing race-based policing. I'm a, I am for abolishing the, the hyper-militarization of policing yes. that we have within our society right now. I'm absolutely for abolishing that. You know, but I also know that how we are thinking about the safety and security for our communities, uh, that can happen just with some blind or, or blanket statement of, of support law enforcement. We have to be clear about what that means. Yes. And one of the most effective ways you can actually support them is by making sure that we are asking, we are tasking them to do the tasks that they should be doing. And also that we are holding those accountable who should be held accountable. It's impossible for me to have a good apple, bad apple conversation when this isn't about good apples, bad apples. It's about systems. And we have to really rethink systems in all this if we're gonna plan on being effective. Well, one of the things I can say looking at it is that all of the incentives in the system um, steer a particular direction. You yes. know what I mean? And, and it's one reason why people uh, grow so frustrated and angry uh, because they see that the system's working for certain people, generally those who are within the system or custodians of the system and not members of the public that in theory, right. the system's supposed to be looking out for or serving. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if this was the intention, but I felt like with a book being written with these different perspectives and characters, it almost felt like it could be a docu-series or a movie. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. If, I mean, you obviously have a lot of experience with, with that medium as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if that was part of the, um, the, the thinking. You know, it's funny. It, it was not part of the thinking. I've been, I've been really humbled by, by the response to the book. Um, you know, people are, people are, are getting it and they're picking it up. And, and that's been really exciting. Also, you know, we have now seen where people are, are saying, you know, there's, is there another way to tell the story too by using other, you know, other sure. medians? to be yeah. able to tell the story as well, television, film, et cetera. And, and I, um, you know, but the thing I think that is, I, I really liked about it was, it shows how quickly these things can turn. And it shows how quickly the arc of not just a societal arc, but the individual arc can move uh, in these moments. If you talk to most people on Saturday and you said to them, I just wanna let you know that in five days, the city's gonna be under a state of emergency. There are gonna be national guardsmen in military uniforms patrolling our streets, we would have had tens of millions of dollars of damage already that we would have seen. 
Um, we would have played baseball games with no one inside the stadium. And we would have played baseball games with people be- with fans being forced to stay in the stadium. All these things would have happened and you would have watched and then and then not to mention on the individual level. And, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, for people who pick it up, when you watch where, for example, Major Parti started at the beginning of the book and where he ended in terms of his career prospects, when you look at the life prospects of where Greg Butler started and where he ended, if you look at just the arc of these individuals during this time period, it's a staggering shift. And that's the point is, uh, and you know, where what I think and I hope people understand is, we watched a major American city implode in five days. This doesn't take long. And, and the thing about it is, is that we are, we are pre-baking an incredibly powerful explosive and we're giving it a very short wick. And when these incidents happen, all they are is they are sparks. Yep. And they are sparks. And when that wick gets caught, it's a very short period of time before it wears down and then we have the explosive. And that's, I think, in many ways what we saw in Baltimore five years ago. How concerned are you about uh, our societal integrity right now? Because uh, I'm very concerned, you yeah. know, like like the trends that you have been fighting for years were in place before COVID. Yeah. Uh, now, COVID has decimated opportunities in many communities. They don't have a cushion they can fall back on. Um, to the extent that they were eligible for leave money, it, it ran out weeks ago. Uh, and I, I'm the numbers guy, 42% of these jobs are not returning. Uh, and we have to start facing facts. There's like this completely nonsensical like oh maybe we'll just snap back to normal and then i I ask people it's like are you going to be running out to the bar concert hall sporting event (laughs) like anytime like you you like making a dash for uh you know the bus yeah you know it's like like uh so it's like you times you know 100 million like no one's gonna be doing this google has a hiring freeze like where the heck is someone and they're still printing money so if you like take the average small business it's not like they're gonna be looking to hire folks who just got laid off from the um the bar the nail salon like the the what have you um so i'm terrified as to what that can become very quickly like i i think that there's going to be disintegration like on a personal level disintegration like a family level disintegration on on these on on the level of these communities uh and that can result in uh violence like uh combustion um your description of certain communities as being built up of flammable material with very short wicks i agree uh, and how so how concerned are you about the fact that we may be witnessing some terrible scenes in the United States um, over the next coming weeks and months? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm very concerned um, to be very honest. I uh, and I'm very concerned because I feel like much of the frustration, it isn't new and it's justified. Right. I mean, you you you, you bring up you bring up some really important points, Andrew, is, you know, prior to COVID-19, we weren't good, right? That, we, we were we, sick already. You know, the, we weren't just walking around like things, everything's, everything's gravy and, and then COVID hit and things got crazy. You know, if you look at the people who lost their jobs since COVID-19, 23% of people who lost their jobs uh, due to COVID-19 
were living in poverty before COVID-19, right? This was the working poor. People who were working jobs, in many cases, multiple jobs, and still were living below the poverty line. That was pre-COVID-19 that we had that reality. Pre-COVID-19, we had the reality where 40% of people could not afford a $400 shock with cash, right? Pre-COVID-19, now we've seen that shock and it is real and it is much more than $400. And so I am, I am, I'm genuinely concerned, and I'm, but I'm specifically genuinely concerned if we don't act. Yes. And, and what I mean by act is not just like, you know, while, while and I say this with, with a, a tremendous amount of appreciation and humility, I have watched how people have been so generous during this moment and being able to give to organizations and give to foundations and give to social service networks and do all that kind of stuff in the most beautiful of ways. And I'm so thankful for that. And I always will be. I also know this is that we have the type of headwinds that there is not going to be enough philanthropy that's going to be able to address it. Yes. You know, I, I think about in the country right now, there is around around $700 billion every year that goes towards philanthropy. And people say like, wow, that's a really big number. I didn't realize the number was so big. That is true. Now, here's the reality. Half of that goes to colleges and universities, alma maters, right? So it's not $700 billion. Now we're Now we are, we are looking at $350 billion. Okay? Now people can say, well, that's still a pretty big number. Fair, that is a big number. Half of that goes to homes of worship and hospitals. So now we're down to 175 billion for everything else. For housing, yeah. for children, for education, for seniors, for the environment, for veterans, for poverty. These problems are much bigger than that. And so federal policies and state and local protections, including things like expanded unemployment and benefits, stimulus payments, SNAP benefits increases, eviction moratoriums. You know, these are all things that have helped people survive the past four yes. months, survive the past four months. And we have now the prospect of tens of millions of people that will fall deeper into poverty without continued aid supports and expansions, you know, that include the immigrant that include immigrant communities that who oftentimes have been left out of the first tranche of all this. And so I am I'm I'm especially and particularly nervous about this next phase and where we are, particularly if we cannot get serious about coming up with ways to be able to support in, in, a, in a really fully functional way that's able to address the problem that we actually have in hand. I want to uh, like smash my head against a wall, pull my hair out, like, you know, gnash my teeth over the fact that our government is not seeing the obvious, uh, you know, like the, the fact that we need to go much bigger in terms of uh, emergency cash relief for people. I would expand it beyond the IRS mechanism. I did not hate the fact that they use the IRS as a way to get cash out to people, um, but it but it missed a lot of folks. You know, and, and my organization, we just were like, what's your Venmo? What's your cash app? What's your PayPal? Let's just get you money in a way that you actually can get it quick. Um, and there's no reason our government cannot do the same thing if it was like we should just be shoveling resources out to people yes. as quickly as possible. And there, there are some boneheads uh, in Congress who are just looking at it the exact wrong way where they're like, oh, people aren't working or, oh, the deficit. It's like, are you kidding me? Like both of those are so like, you know, inflation. I mean, we're, we're in the prob probably in the process of entering a deflationary cycle because no one wants to spend or take risks. Uh, so we should be putting money into people's hands 
uh, as quickly as possible and effectively. And if we don't do it, I think we're going to witness the disintegration of many, many uh, families, communities, lives, um, and, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be devastating, catastrophic. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, and this this actually gives us an interesting opportunity, Andrew, to actually rethink a lot of things and a lot of systems that should have been rethought prior to COVID-19, right? So we absolutely need to do things like, you know, continue the federal unemployment insurance benefits. We absolutely need to do things like, you know, increase maximum SNAP benefits and extend the pandemic EBT programs, um, uh, you know, improving child tax credits by making them fully refundable, those type of things. We know those things have to be in place, but there's also some other bigger things that we think about as well. Consider the fact that over the past four months, we've now watched 5.6 million people lose their health insurance. And oftentimes that's because we had a health insurance system that is based on employer insurance. So when we lose 11 no years sense. of job growth no in 11 before. weeks, yeah. it didn't make sense before. But we're watching the impacts and the implications of now watching over 5 million people who are now uninsured because their jobs went away. And how do we decouple these things? How are we having conversation around education? I am terribly concerned about what's going to happen in the fall. Yes. I just Terribly had conversations concerned. with uh, with um, Emily Oster. I don't know if you you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, about uh, how school districts are preparing or not preparing, really. Um, That's right. And and the the thought is that uh, many schools are going to feel like uh, discretion is the better part of valor. And uh, as as soon as someone gets sick or even beforehand, they were like, well, like let, let's send everyone home, which has right. its own set of devastating effects on various families. Like it seems like the quote unquote, like the responsible thing to do, but it, it actually is abdicating responsibility for, um, a lot of kids and families. And not to mention the fact that, you know, in addition to the fact that we're watching this, this seismic educational gap, that is about to blow open if we're not being incredibly deliberate about it. But you know, we forget that our, our schools are the largest food provider for children in the country. Our schools are, are the largest mental health provider for children in the country. Our schools are the largest childcare provider for families in this country. So it's not just what the, are the kids learning, you know, yes. reading, writing, arithmetic. It's, it's just all content. the other things. Yes that schools provide to families. And so this give, but this gives us an interesting opportunity to actually take some things that we just, we swallow it as truth, we swallow it as fact, and allows us to say, is there a way to actually reevaluate, right? Is there a way to actually think differently and say, should we be having conversations about school years and school days? Should we be having conversations about the ways we are compensating our teachers? And when you consider the, you know, the, the heroic work that they are doing, should we be having conversations about completely rethinking the educational structure? Uh, the, you know, how many, how many days and years and, and, and weeks we have students who are inside a formalized classroom? How do we have a conversation on making all these assets like tablets and, and computers completely universal rights for kids? Man, I mean, I, I agree with you that we need to reinvent and rethink many of these things, given the nature of the crisis we're in. Uh, I just throw my hands up as to whether that investment and reimagining is happening. You know, like we, we just seem stuck. And then when we're not able to deliver on what we used to do, then we're like, well, I guess we're not going to do a whole heck of a lot of anything, you know, particularly for people who uh, are uh, toward the bottom of the resource level. I mean, uh, yeah. what Emily was saying to me was that some rich families are just getting some like old school medieval style tutor who comes and like lives with a kid and like it goes back to like the, you know, some kind of uh, strange 
uh, Game of Thrones type arrangement where, where you have like, you know, I mean, like that's what's going on with like films at the top. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hope that we do reinvent these systems. Uh, we need to rewrite the rules of the economy in my mind. And, and you're 100 percent right that philanthropy doesn't have the right scale. You know, you're, you're looking at it. I mean, we're like a $22 trillion economy pre-crisis. You kneecap us, like you knock one leg out. I mean, like you you need trillions of dollars to try and shore up where that leg used to be. Uh, and the scale of philanthropy, even if we're all to get channeled towards it. And I'm like you, it's like, I appreciate everyone who's actually stepping up. I mean, it's great. Um, but, you know, given the size of the whole, you need our government to get its shit together and our government does not seem to have its shit together. Yeah. But I do think, though, that that's actually a unique place also where philanthropy can play. Um, because Shaping I think government, ph- that's right. <laughs> well, no, because I, I think philanthropy, philanthropy needs to appreciate the fact that we're not just check writers. Right. For that, I, I believe deeply that the most powerful tool that I have at my disposal is not the purse. It's our voice. It's the fact that when you think about these philanthropic organizations and these social service organizations, that it's not just the fact that we can influence and and we can use our we can we can create catalytic capital. Right. We can we can be venture philanthropists. We can invest early. We can de-risk things. And there is an important components of that within our large society. You can fund a UBI trial with me, brother. Let's fund some UBI <laughs> in the Bronx. Let's de-risk that. And then the government will come in and be like, hey, look at that. That but that but see, but that that that's that is the unique role of philanthropy. And I agree. And, and so so you, you I mean so I think about that. I think about the role of how we've even thought about it within within our relief fund, right? We're part of the reason that I'm so excited that we were able to generate and and, and working a lot on, on your leadership and your vision around this, right? Is is how do we go and support organizations that were right now doing it with direct cash assistance? So I think about the fact that we were able to work with Give Directly for SNAP users with low balances, work yeah, with that. CUNY to for thousands of low-income CUNY students, you know, work with the Chinese American Planning Council for low-income Chinese immigrants, work with, uh, you know, with NYC Kids Rise for families who were hit the hardest in communities like Queens, New York, the most diverse community in the entire country. And so we were able to do that and use philanthropic dollars for those type of things in a way that we really can prove that things are working and working to de- working to de-risk it. Uh, I also, though, believe to your point, part of the most powerful thing that we can do is once we can invest in something, the, the things that we've invested in that I'm most proud of are the things we no longer invest in. Yes. Yeah, right. The thing that we don't have to invest in anymore. It's either the problem was solved or government took it over. Because the government now knew that, listen, this works. One of the proudest, uh, you know, one of the things that, that Robin had often talked about, you know, kind of as one of his proudest moments was we were the first organization that, that invested in needle exchanges. And we did it at a time when it was really controversial and really scary. And people saying, what do you mean, you know, giving, giving drug dealers clean needles? Well, the data was showing that if you're looking at the rise of it's HIV AIDS, lives, yeah. it was actually the transmission of dirty needles. That was one of the fastest rates for, for, for this transmission. And so we piloted it and we funded it. And now we don't fund it anymore. No one does because the federal government does it. But they were never going to be first money in. And so this becomes a unique opportunity to be able to work with not just the federal government, but state governments, city governments, to be able to say, let us test things out. Let us be the risk capital. Let's do it, man. Where do you want to, to pilot UBI in New York? Anywhere Robin Hood operates. We're 100% going to do this. That's going to be the fruit of the, this conversation. You know, my, my biggest question for you, Wes, is a personal one. 
I've known you for years, uh, and your biography is remarkable. It's the stuff of, uh, frankly, like, you know, almost too good to be true, made for TV movie type stuff, like jumping out of planes, uh, <laughs> defending the country, trying to fight poverty at the scale you're, you're fighting it. Um, I've been in rooms with you. I've been in similar rooms. Um, and th there were times when I felt like, and this would be more extreme for you than it would be for me. Um, because, you know, like, and, and when I was running for president, I actually kind of realized a little bit of like the role I was filling, like the persona. Um, like in your case, you're like the walking inspirational, like, hey, uh, like I'm like the embodiment of the American dream. Um, like as a, as a leader who's come out of really difficult circumstances and, and now is someone that everyone looks to for inspiration. Um, the personal question is like when I was in those rooms, there were times when I just felt like screaming my head off, like, yeah. like where, where like I have that role and like, you know, as particularly when I was the head of a nonprofit, because you were continuously, there was like this, you know, dynamic you had where it's like, and now here's inspirational nonprofit leader. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, like I will now play my role to the best of my ability. Um, and then you will give me this um, grant, maybe if I'm lucky or I did a good job. And, and then whatever size the grant is, then like I act like it's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> like even yes. if, you know, maybe like I was hoping for something a little different or bigger. Um, uh, and and so that there were, times like when I really struggled personally. Now I've known you for years and I've, I've never really felt from you like like anything but like 100% like functional uh, sincerity really. Like you know like you, like you always seem to be inhabiting yourself and very present. Um, so I, I'm just wondering whether or how you deal with like any of those uh, thoughts or pressures if you have them or if I'm just projecting my own struggles onto you. Brother, uh, it is it is it is an everyday thing, um, and, but I realize too it, it's an everyday thing for all of us, right? And and actually, and I and I, I, I give you I, I give you a lot of praise in the fact that you own it. I think there's a lot of people who walk around like it's not real, like it's not this. I mean, um, transparency and and transparency and humility are incredibly powerful particularly to see in people that i admire like you because the reality is that that pressure is real and and, and i think that part of the thing that i think that kind of keeps me in a level of center and 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 i know it does for you as well is we do walk around knowing that our narratives our stories when you consider our backgrounds and our journeys are unlikely. That we weren't the people who came from, you know, this was not a quote unquote societal birthright. This was something that there were people in our lives, family members, friends, mentors, coaches, etc., who in many ways saw something in us before we could even see it in ourselves. And I think about it in the case of like my grandfather, where my grandfather was actually the, the first one on my mom's side of the family born in this country. He was born in Charleston, South Carolina, but he wasn't raised here. And the reason was because when he was just a toddler, the Ku Klux Klan ran him and the rest of my family out of this country. Not just out of Charleston, South Carolina, because my, grand, my great grandfather was a minister and he's a very vocal minister. And eventually the verbal threats became physical ones and he picked up his family in the middle of the night and he left this country. 
and uh, well, where, and, the, where, and the majority of my family, you know, they, they vowed to never come back here and they didn't. My grandfather did. My grandfather was the only one who came back to the United States and started his family here with my great grandmother who's actually from Cuba and they came to the South Bronx where he was a minister, the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. My grandmother was a school teacher in the South Bronx for almost 30 years. And I think about it in context of this where this was a man who was forced out of this country when he was just a child. Some of his earliest memories were America's ugliest moments. And he loved this country like no one I knew. And I think about, and part of the reason I have to tell you, Andrew, why I, why when you told me that, my first gut reaction was that you're running, my first gut reaction was to hug you because what else are we supposed to be doing? Like this country is an extraordinarily, it's an extraordinarily special experiment. And it's something that every drop of progress has been hard earned, it has not been inevitable. And it's something that needed to happen because the words of this country were not matching up to its practices. Its ideals and its values were not matching up to its practices. And so every single bit of progress that we have made in this country has been hard earned and it's been hard fought for. And what choice do we have, particularly considering the past and the legacies that we come from, but to fight, but to stand up and be a portion as brave as my grandfather was, as, as your family was, have a portion of the bravery and the courage and the loyalty and the patriotism that they had. And so this, I mean, this is, this is hard stuff, man. And sometimes there is a level, this, this are, the place that we call home will leave us with a level of frustration that is sometimes indescribable. Our job isn't to stay there though. Our job is to remember not just why we're here, but the progress we have made and to know that if that progress is going to continue, it's on us. We're not responsible for where things are right now, but the truth is, if they're like that 20 years from now, that is our cross to bear. That is on us. And that's what I just take seriously. Well, you certainly embody that through your action, your career, uh, the stories that you've been amplifying and sharing with the world. It's a privilege to be your friend, Wes, and uh, it's gonna be a privilege to abolish poverty alongside you in the Amen. days to come, first in a small part of the country and then hopefully society-wide. Uh, so thank you for this. Uh, your, your new book, Five Days, it, it's awesome. All of your books have been spectacular. Uh, and yeah, like all the, like I'm so glad we got to sit down. I've been looking forward to this as well. Uh, you know, like I, um, got lost on the trail for for quite some time, but yeah. you know, <laughs> but um, but like like uh, you know spending time with you now in this way, it feels a little bit like a homecoming. I feel a little bit like I've gone full circle. Me too, brother. I'm proud of you, man. Keep pushing, keep prodding. We uh we will be better, and we'll do it together. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, man. All the best to the family. You too, man.